together James chapter 5. If you're new with us around here, uh, my name is Ben. I'm glad that you could be with us today as we worship Jesus together and look at his scriptures this morning. Uh, we've been walking through the book of James for most of the fall, and uh, I think next week we will finish up. And then it'll be Advent, so the Christmas season is upon us, and we'll be looking at the early narratives of Jesus' life from Matthew uh, for Advent season, okay? James chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 this morning. 7 through 11, hear the reading of God's Word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the, of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, while we wait, while we wait. Let's pray before we begin. Father, uh, we come humbled by your sovereignty and your control, your power over all things. Lord, as we read a passage like this and it speaks to patience and speaks to difficult times, Lord, many of us in this room today are going through hard times. We're suffering for various reasons, whether it's sickness in our body or conflict in our families or stress at the job, whatever it may be, God, it's hard to be patient. It's hard to wait. So, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would help us today as you speak to us in your word. May you encourage our hearts, establish our hearts, as James says. Lord, that's our prayer today for all of us, that we would be established and rooted in the good news of the gospel and your love for us. Do that today for your glory and our good through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Some years ago at a Houston airport, there was a group of executives at the airport who were trying to solve a problem because they kept getting a cascade of complaints. These complaints were coming in from all over the place, from employees, from customers, online, different areas. They're getting these complaints about the baggage claim wait time. And if you've never been to the airport or had this experience, there's a period between when you get off the airplane and you get your bags. And at this airport, people were waiting long periods of time and, and they were frustrated and so they tried to make it better by uh, hiring more people to help with the bags. And so that helped a little bit and it got them down to kind of the industry average, which was about eight minutes that people were waiting for their bags, but they were still getting complaints. In fact, sometimes they were getting worse complaints even when the time went down. And they realized that what was happening was it was only about one minute from the plane to the baggage, and then they stood there with seven minutes, nothing to do. 
Seven minutes. They, they had nothing to do, and so they're waiting. They're frustrated. Their kids are going crazy if they got kids with them. Seven minutes of nothing to do, and so they realize someone in their, in their team comes up with this brilliant idea. Here's what we'll do. We'll move the baggage claim further away from where you get off the airplane. Problem solved. It took them seven minutes now to get to their bag, and they only had to wait one minute. Sometimes they didn't wait at all. Their bag was waiting for them. No difference in the time. Problem solved. Complaints disappeared. No one was worried about where are my bags? Why is this taking so long? Turns out what they found out was we, all of us, are less concerned about how long we're waiting, but it's more about what we're doing while we wait. It's about what is happening in that in-between time because the reality is we all hate to wait. I mean, not just at the airport, it's any kind of line. I mean, I don't know about you, but I hate getting in the slow line at the grocery store or at Walmart. You're upset because the person in front of you only had three items and here you are 10 minutes later. We hate to wait. We hate to wait at the, the polls as you're trying to vote. We hate to wait at the notorious DMV. We just hate to wait. And let me say, it's, it's even worse when you're suffering. It's even worse when you're trying to wait, and it's one thing to wait for the car in front of you on the highway that's going too slow, but it's another thing to wait when you're waiting for healing in your body and you're dying of cancer. It's one thing to wait for Black Friday, the new PS5 coming out, it's another thing to wait for justice to roll down like mighty rivers. One thing to wait for somebody to make the coffee at your local coffee shop. It's another thing to wait for God to transform the heart of your teenager. You just can't seem to figure it out. I mean, there's some things that are much weightier, right? So, some things that that you, you have to have a sense of, of what's going on. You, you have to have a sense of where you are in the story. Some, re, some waiting requires you to slow down and, and know your own soul, to know your God, to be aware of what's happening, because some waiting is different than other waiting. Some waiting you can't just distract yourself out. You have to know what's happening. And so I believe that the gospel helps us to wait well. It answers the question, what do you do in the in-between? What do you do between the trouble and the change you desire? The gospel helps us to wait. And so we continue our series today uh, through the letter of James. We've been calling this series a faith that works. And James has been writing this letter to a group of Christians who are dispersed throughout the Mediterranean area. And, and he's been writing to very diverse people. Some of them are rich, some of them are poor. And in fact, earlier in the chapter, in chapter 5, James gives this stern warning. I mean, stern warning. James was angry at the beginning of this chapter. He goes off on the wealthy, not because they're wealthy, but because they've been taking advantage of the poor. He's not saying it's necessarily be, it's wrong to be wealthy. It's what you do with your wealth. And so he tells these people that God's judgment is coming upon them for how they've been treating the poor among them. And then he turns now to the poor people in the congregation or the recipients of his letter who've been overhearing this judgment upon the wealthy. 
And now he speaks to them because they've been asking the whole time, where is God? Why do these people keep taking advantage of us? Why are we still in this place? Is God going to show up? Does he hear our cries? Does he hear our prayers? Why is he taking so long? We're waiting. And I believe that's the question James wants to answer this morning. As we we ask that question, how long must we wait? We have to first reconsider how we see time. How we see time. So if you're taking notes this morning, stick with me. First thing is already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Look at verse 7. James brings this out in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Listen, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now what I love is is James is writing these words just 20 years after Jesus has ascended to heaven. So if you know the life of Jesus, or you're, maybe you're new to the Bible, Jesus came, was born, we're about to celebrate in Christmas the birth of Christ, right? And then he lived his life, he died on the cross, he rose again, and then he ascends back to heaven. But before he ascends to heaven, he tells the apostles, he says, I'm going to return, but I'm sending you out on mission. He doesn't tell them when he's coming. He just says, be ready. Be ready at any moment. And so the apostles are preaching and moving around, spreading the gospel, and they're telling people, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. There's this imminent return of Jesus. Now it's been 20 years. James is still saying, Jesus is coming, he's he's coming, he's right here. Now in our time, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, this is strangely profound. There's something amazing about what James is saying. He's saying that the coming of Jesus, even though it's right here, in another sense, it's going to be in at least two millennium. I mean, James is describing what theologians call the reality of the already, but not yet. The already, but the not yet. In other words, Jesus came already, and so the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now, but it's not yet fully come. That he, he has come in his first coming, his first advent that we celebrate at Christmas, but there will be another advent. There will be another coming of Jesus. And so we live between the two times. We live between the two comings. And it requires waiting. It requires incredible patience. I love how James says it. He, he says it's like the farmer. You know, we're not very, you know, farmer society now, but back in the day, all of them, all, everybody had some kind of close relationship to farming, and so they would have got the image immediately that the farmer goes out in the fall, in their case, and right before the fall rains, the farmer would go out and he would plant his crop and prepare the ground, and, and then the fall rains would come, and then what does the farmer do? He waits. Because the spring rains were coming, but it was going to be a while. And in the meantime, in between the two rains, he had work to do. He had to continue to care for the ground. He had to continue to weed the, the, the soil. He had to make sure the crops were growing. But nothing he did could speed up the process. Nothing he did could get the spring rains to somehow come in December. Nothing he could... 
he could do on his own efforts would bring about the harvest earlier. He just had to wait and work. But it was the confidence, it was the promise, knowing that the rains were coming, that allowed him to work. It was the promise that the rains would bring about the harvest if he were just to wait, that allowed him to be secured in his heart. See, this is what James is saying, that patience has this promised perspective on time. Patience sees time through the perspective of God's promise. Uh, my wife recently got one of these new uh, mini hydroponic garden things. I don't know. She got it for Christmas last year. I don't even know what it's called, but it's, it's like a little silver box, and it's got little pods, and you can grow all kinds of herbs and, and things for cooking. I don't, I don't even know what they are. Thyme, basil, I don't know, other things that, that she knows about, I don't know about. But literally, there's no soil. It's just water, light, and a seed. And you put the seed in this little pod and it feeds water into the seed and, and these little LED lights, you turn them on and it grows. And it grows fast. I mean, really fast. What would normally take weeks or months, it takes like two days. And if you let that thing go for a week or two weeks, it is like it is now in our house. It's this bush that has grown so fast, we don't know what to do. Now it's flowering. I mean, apparently we're not keeping up with the pace of this little hydroponic garden. But I thought the other day as I was looking at this bush that is now growing in our house, it's so odd to me, and maybe it is to be expected, that we would find a way to speed up even something so simple and sacred as growing food that we would find a way to cheat the system and speed up the process from a month to a day or two. I mean, isn't that odd? But, but then it makes perfect sense when you think about our culture because we, it's no wonder we struggle with patience because we hate, uh, we're, we're, no, we're, we're addicted to speed. We, we hate when it's slow. We're, we're addicted to things being fast, and, and the reality is patience has a slower pace. Patience has a pace that's, that's allergic to speed. In fact, it must actively resist the desire to speed things up. Why? Because patience is fundamentally focused on the promise. Patience fundamentally reorients everything about your life around the promise. The farmer's whole work is geared towards the coming of the rain. Now imagine for a second... Don't, don't, don't label me as crazy, but what if your whole life was reoriented around Jesus is coming? I'm not talking about putting, you know, like a, a chart here with dragons and helicopters and politicians' names or whatever. I'm not talking about you're reorienting your whole life around trying to figure out the time and the day and the place. But what if, it, what if you reoriented your whole life around the hope and the promise that Jesus is coming? That Jesus is coming in such a way that it's going to transform your hope, it's going to transform your, your love, it's going to transform your ability to endure, it's going to transform the sin in your life, it's going to take care of everything you have ever worried about. 
That when Jesus comes back, he's going to take every tear. He's going to take every tyranny of sin. He's going to take every suffering, every bloated and terrible experience you have had. And he's going to wipe it clean. He's coming. And James is saying to be patient for his coming and let it to shape your patience. But don't mistake patience for being passive, right? I mean, patience that he's talking about, again, he's using this image of the farmer that it's both waiting and it's working. The the kind of patience he's calling for is not to sit and do nothing, but in fact, we wait with confidence, knowing that that confidence produces in us the ability to work. And so as we wait, we work to share the gospel with our neighbors. As we wait, we work to love the poor and the marginalized. As we wait, we work to disciple people into spiritual maturity. As we wait, we plant churches to give hope to our community. As we wait, we give generously in our life to everyone we come across to. As we wait, we work. Because there's confidence that the promise is coming. But this kind of waiting and working, this this promise perspective on life, if it's not happening in our hearts... James says something else happens, there's grumbling. And this is the second point, grumbling hearts. Look at verse 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, when we start facing hard times, I don't know about you, but usually what happens is you turn towards other people who are around you, and you start blaming people, you start complaining to people, people that had nothing to do with the problem, right? They, they just get in the crossfire about what's going on in your life, and now you've got conflict related to nothing, but you're grumbling, you're complaining, you're upset about it. I love what James says here. He uses this word grumble because it's, it's just the perfect picture of how it works. Grumbling is, is a kind of complaining that's trying to complain while masking it. You're, you're complaining, but, but it's, it's under the radar, right? It's, it's under your breath. It's, it's understated. It's behind someone's back. It's, it's passive aggressive. You say things like, oh, if they would just have listened to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. This is so stupid. Why are we doing this? It's not fair that I have to do this and no one else has to do this. And you probably haven't said any of those things. We may not hear the grumbling because it might be under someone's breath or, or behind their back, but you feel it. You can feel the presence of grumbling. You can feel the spirit of grumbling beginning to spread. And, and James is saying that all of our grumbling that happens against one another, it's really grumbling against God. And this is why he says, he says, he tells us to stop. He says, do not grumble. And then he says, so that you may not be judged. Now, he's playing on this image of Jesus, the judge, who's coming back, right? He's saying, in your grumbling, you're putting yourself in the place of judge. Because in in our grumbling, we're putting ourselves in the place of judge to judge everybody else and how they're doing whatever they're doing. We're putting ourselves in the place of judge to judge everybody else for how they're treating us. We're putting ourselves in place of judge to judge even God. And James is saying, you've got it backwards. God is the judge. You are under him. And this judge is coming back, and he says he's right at the door. His hand is on the doorknob. 
And so grumbling in, in my heart is, is living without a sense of God's nearness. He's slow, so I'm impatient. He's distant, so I'm impatient. He's foolish, so I'm impatient. I mean, do you see the arrogance? Impatience is the overflow of pride towards God. Probably the greatest example in the Bible of this kind of grumbling is in the wilderness with Israel. Right? If you're familiar with the story of Israel, they are 400 years in slavery in Egypt, and God miraculously delivers them out of their bondage and you know, does incredible miracles to pull them out of this most powerful nation in the world, delivers them into what is going to be the promised land, but in between, right, it's that in between, in between Egypt and the promised land, there's a wilderness. And God takes them through the wilderness because God takes everybody he loves through the wilderness. That's how God works. And as he's taking them through the wilderness, they start to grumble. And I'm not talking like, weeks or months. It's like days. You just saw God do the greatest miracle in the history of your nation. And a couple days later, all right, where's the food? Right after, right after God just provided for all your needs, where's the food? All right, where, where's the water? Right after they watched God split the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground, where, where's the water? and they're grumbling, and they're angry, and they're tired, and they're hungry. And then the grumbling gets back to Moses, and they start throwing out threats like, we're going back. You brought us out here just to kill us. What were you thinking? We don't want anything to do with you. And Moses, listen, Moses is so perceptive to their heart. He doesn't even buy it as it's against him. Listen, he says, why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? It sounds on the surface like you're grumbling against my leadership and my decisions and, and what we're doing out here in the wilderness and where the food and the water is, but be careful. You're grumbling against God. And it's toxic. Listen, church, grumbling in my heart and in your heart and in our church, it is uh, toxic. It, it is infectious. It goes viral. It'll go viral in the church. It'll go viral in your family. It'll go viral in your marriage. It'll go viral in your school. It, it starts like this seemingly small thing where I'm, I'm, just, I'm just venting a little bit. I'm just sharing my heart. And then it begins to spread, and it spreads, and it spreads. And Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years and didn't make it to the promised land. That generation, they had to wait a whole generation and it started with grumbling. And I'm telling you, as your pastor and just in general in the church at large, we struggle with grumbling. We, we struggle with all kinds of grumbling. I mean, nobody pays attention to me like they should. I mean, they don't play the music that I like. I'm, I'm tired of people who, who don't say hi to me, or when are we going to stop talking about racial justice, or why don't we do more of this, and I can't believe you said that in the Bible study. We're just grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. And James says, watch out. Watch out. Now this brings up an important question. What's the difference between grumbling and lamenting? Because I'm not saying stuff all your feelings and don't talk to anybody. 
There's a key difference in the Bible between grumbling and lamenting. Listen to me carefully. Grumbling is when you place yourself above God. Lamenting puts yourself under God. Lamenting is, is the lost art of taking our pain to God, right? Not accusing God, but asking God. Not demanding from God, but depending on God. And if you read the Psalms, it's full of lamenting that you're taking your pain and your confusion and your struggles to God and saying, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why I have to walk through this. I don't understand why this happened to my son. I don't understand what's going on in our nation. I don't understand. God, help me. But I trust you. I trust you. I may not like it. In fact, I hate some of it. But I trust you. Do you hear that? You place yourself under God. You're not demanding from Him. You're not accusing Him. You're bringing your pain to Him and putting your suffering under the sovereignty of God. And I want to tell you something that, especially in severe suffering, there's no way to go from grumbling to gratitude without lamenting. You have to lament. You have to share your heart with God. You have to bring your pain and your struggles with Him or to Him, but... You have to do it in a way that you submit yourself to him and do it in a way where you, you know your father loves you. He cares for you. There's no safer place to be honest than to be honest with God, to share with him your, your frustrations, to share with him your confusion, your disappointment, right? There's no safer place for your pain than with your heavenly father. And so he calls us to his lap to lament to lament and to keep lamenting until your heart goes from grumbling to gratitude. You share with him. And it's in the midst of that worst suffering and pain that we witness God's steadfast love. And this is the last point, uh, steadfast love. Look at verse 10. James says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Right? When we suffer as Christians, we're not trailblazing through some place that no one has ever been. James is saying that we are following the well-worn path of believers for centuries. That we are following behind people who have gone before us and have been faithful, have been steadfast. And so he brings to mind some of the greats. He says, remember the prophets, these men and women who spoke for God, who, who had a ministry where they were, they were loving people and they were speaking truth. They suffered. Some of the greatest men and women of faith, they suffered greatly. In fact, we know of very few prophets who didn't, who didn't at some cost to themselves remain faithful to God. And he's saying, this is the norm. This is the norm in how Christianity works. This is what it means to have a relationship with God. And he uses this incredible word. He says, they're steadfast. The Greek, I love it, it says, it's to stay, to remain, to wait. The Hebrew parallel would probably be hesed, which is this idea of a staying love, an enduring love. That It's this one-way love that never stops. 
And possibly the most famous Old Testament example is Job himself that James pulls out. He says, think about Job and his steadfastness that's famous. Job, if you don't know his story, was at the peak of his life, had, had everything. He, he had the life that everyone around him looked at and says, that's the good life. And then he lost it. He lost his wife. He lost his kids. He lost his home. He lost his friends. He lost his wealth. He lost everything. And of course, his friends come in and they're trying to explain his suffering. They're trying to say, well, maybe it was this and maybe it was this and you need to do this and you need to do this. And Job famously says in chapter 19, he he gives us an insight into his steadfastness in, in chapter 19. He says, for I know, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God. I love that. What he's saying is, in other words, I may not be able to explain it, but I can still endure it. I may not be able to explain it, but I can still endure it because the goal of suffering is not to explain it. It's to endure it. To endure it in love, to know that your God is for you, not against you, that he is alive and well and on the throne. Job says, how can I do that? Because you know the Lord is compassionate and faithful and merciful. And you will see him on the other side of whatever you're walking through. His love will carry you through it because he carries you through it all. Right? Patience requires this persevering love, this enduring love from God to us and then us to God. In the 1964 Olympics uh, that were in Tokyo, there was a group of people who came from Sri Lanka as you know, competing athletes and and one of them was a 10,000-meter runner, marathon runner. His, name, his nickname was Marathon Karu, kind of famous in their local community. And he comes to the, to the race, and it's this 10,000-meter race that the, the guy from the U.S., I think his name was Billy Mays. What, I wrote it down. Billy Mills. He, he was the, the winner eventually, right? Billy Mills from the U.S. wins the race. And at the end of the race, as he crosses the finish line, Marathon Karu is about four laps behind. He had been lapped four times by the winner. And as soon as the winner crosses the finish line, everybody else on the track immediately exits the track, except Marathon Karu. He decides he's going to keep running. And so he runs, and he runs. He's running, and as people start to notice that he's continuing to run and not stopping like everybody else, they start mocking him. The whole stadium erupts in laughing and mocking him. They're throwing things at him. Lap three starts. Lap two starts. He's down to the final lap. And as people realize this guy's not going to stop until he finishes the race, it turns from laughing to cheering. And they start to cheer. They, they erupt in praise and applause. And they're cheering him on for his whole final lap as he's finishing this race that everyone else had quit on. He goes all the way to the end, and the reporters are waiting at the finish line. They call him over, and they ask him, why in the world did you finish the last four laps? And this is what he says. This made him a legend in Sri Lanka. The Olympic spirit is not to win, but to take part. So I ran until I finished. It reminds me of this quote from William Barclay, who's a Bible scholar. He says, endurance isn't just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it into glory. Did you catch that? Endurance isn't just the ability to bear a hard thing, it's to turn it into glory. 
I mean, that's the gospel of what Jesus does, the glory of God in Christ, that he doesn't come to explain our suffering, but to endure it for his glory, to endure it for our glory. Jesus enters into the suffering and the shame of our sin. He entered into the misery and the mystery of our pain, and he said, this is my glory. He said, this is my glory that I would endure the cross, that I would come to die in your place. That's my glory. My glory is that I would lose everything, not for me, but for you. That I would lose uh, my freedom as I'm nailed to the cross. I would lose my dignity as I'm mocked by the crowds. I would lose my life as I breathe my last and cry out, it is finished. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't stop running? Aren't you glad Jesus endured to the end? Aren't you glad Jesus came not to explain suffering, but to beat it, to finish it? to win over our sin, to win over our sickness, to win over all that has fallen in creation. But just as Job said before him, I know that my Redeemer lives. And if Jesus' glory was in the cross, His promise was in the resurrection. Right? He was the first fruits of God's promise to restore us fully. All that's been lost will be restored. All that's been made wrong will be made right. All that's been made sad will be made untrue. He wipes away every tear. He'll heal every sickness. He'll comfort every heart. It may not be that it comes in this world, but make no mistake, it'll come when He comes. Our Redeemer is alive, and He has won the victory over every sin, every suffering, even death itself. And so He calls us to be patient as He says, I'm coming. He says, I'm on my way, just keep running. It may not seem like you're getting better, but I'm on my way, keep running. It may not seem like you can make it, but I'm on my way, keep running. It may not seem like anyone is for you, but I am on my way, keep running. God is calling us to run the race to the finish. As James says, to be patient as the farmer, but work, work knowing that we endure, knowing that he endured for us. And as we close this morning, where do you need God's grace to help you to keep running? Where do you need the, the power of the Holy Spirit to encourage you, to strengthen you, to enliven you to the work that He's called you to do? Because that's the only way you can do it, right? It's the preserving love that we have in Christ that helps us to be preserved to love Him. It's only in His power. It's we love because He first loved us. We run because He first ran for us. We endure because He first endured for us. Nothing can stop His love for you. Nothing will. But He calls you to run and to surrender to Him. He offers that today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, while we wait, let us run. Let us run, as Hebrews says, the race that's put before us. Let us run knowing that you're the one who's called us. Let us run knowing you're the one that sustains us. Let us run knowing that you're the one that will keep us to the end. Oh Lord Jesus, there's so many things that don't make sense in this life. So many things that we don't get answers for. So many things that we wait and we wait and we wonder if we'll ever stop waiting. But Lord, we pray as we wait that you would show up in the midst of it. That we would know that we have uh, our Lord standing next to us. Our risen Lord who has gone through everything we've gone through and worse. 
We have a high priest who sympathizes with us. We have a high priest who's victorious over all our sin and shame. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would not allow us to grumble, but humble our hearts, encourage our hearts, establish our hearts, that we might bring glory to your name as we endure whatever suffering we experience. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you.